You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 125 by Rudolf Steiner. Fourteen lectures entitled Paths and Goals of the Spiritual Human Being, Life Questions in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Christian von Arnhem. This is Lecture 9, given in Nuremberg on the 13th of November, 1910. When we look back on human development, initially as far back as history allows us, we encounter something very peculiar. We can test what we encounter there in a great variety of phenomena. Above all, and we will still see today how basically what I will say now applies to every human heart, to every human soul, we can test this human development against the various documents, traditions, and writings that have been preserved. When we go back to the ideas that the individual peoples of antiquity had about the origin of the world, about the relationship of human beings to the world, about the sources of morality and goodness, we find that these ideas were laid down in sagas, in myths, in legends, in a more or less beautiful, magnificent, mighty, or maybe also less significant form among the various peoples on earth. People today are very much inclined to treat these myths, sagas, and legends as poetic writings, and to say, peoples thought up these things in their childhood ages because they did not yet have the sources of today's sciences. They had all kinds of ideas how the world arose, the Greeks through their gods, the old Germanic tribes through their gods, and indeed is set out by the American peoples, whose sagas have only become available to us in recent times, and which coincide with what we find in those of other peoples. When we hear how Quetzalcoatl and Huitzilopochtli played a role among the Central American peoples, similarly, if more primitively, to other mighty developed figures of other peoples, we can see that there are sagas and myths among all such peoples. And as I already mentioned, modern people are easily inclined to say those are poetic writings, fantastical creations of the human spirit, which wanted in this way to explain for itself how the various beings in the world, the various natural phenomena came about. Among these various documents, we now find a great one which a large number of you examined with me only a short while ago, a great document, Genesis, the start of the Old Testament. And we saw in Munich the infinite depths which lie in Genesis. Some of you have also already heard the words out of spiritual knowledge about the different Gospels, the last documents of this kind. We find such documents preserved which originated in various ages, which we passed through in our previous incarnations, in which we participated in earlier lives on earth. Anyone making progress in spiritual knowledge must learn to understand that they were present in ages in which people spoke of, say, Zeus and Hera, Kronos and other gods, and spoke about natural phenomena in another way from today in such a form as is contained in myths, sagas, and fairy tales. All these things we have to consider. 
And we have to ask ourselves, how actually has that affected our souls which have taken in such things and which now, for most people in a sense, without them knowing what filled them in those times, emerge again in our souls? Now, let me describe to you quite simply how these documents affect anyone who begins by taking them as sagas, myths, and poetic works, but who then goes deeper into spiritual science and uses the latter as an instrument in order to understand these documents to an ever greater extent. With the Old Testament, for example, which most people today might read as a nice compendium of all kinds of images about the creation of the world, it will happen to them that they will gradually say to themselves, these things which are reproduced there in such a remarkable way contain an infinite wisdom, and they will increasingly realize that the individual words and phrases and sentences contain things to which, if we understand them properly, spiritual science quite naturally leads us today. There is perhaps no means more effective for letting our appreciation of such documents grow than to penetrate, to a certain extent, into spiritual science. For the most subtle discoveries which can be made in the field of spiritual science, the most powerful things which can be rediscovered with a great deal of effort through spiritual science, we discover afterward in some biblical saying, let us say in Genesis. But now a certain difference is revealed between the Old Testament and all other sagas and myths and documents. That is something we should remember. Take the sagas of the Greeks, the ancient Germanic tribes, even what is contained in the Vedas of the Indians, what is contained in the Persian documents. Take everything of this kind. There is one huge difference in comparison to the Old Testament. This difference presents itself to the unbiased reviewer such that they find, in all the other documents, the riddles of natural phenomena, the riddles of everything which relates to natural phenomena, including human beings to the extent that they have a kind of natural existence, to the extent that the forces of nature push human beings in various directions, represented in a mythical way. But only in the Old Testament do they see the human being from the beginning as a moral soul being. What science today has to say about these things rests on very shaky ground. It all collapses into nothingness if we look at these things in a way which is truly appropriate for the spirit. There is thus a fundamental difference so that we can say everything else that we have by way of documents in the world reveals to us that human beings had mighty revelations from various sides, mighty revelations which were expressed in a mythical form and which were created on the basis of a profound wisdom, but which do not relate to the moral soul mysteries of the human being. That then is clear under all circumstances. Now another difference presents itself if we compare the New Testament with all other documents of this kind. Here a completely different spirit rules from all other documents, including the Old Testament. How might we understand this difference if we approach the matter from an anthroposophical perspective? This difference will become clear to us if we first place another phenomenon before our soul. Imagine a person who has never heard of spiritual science and who is a product of the scientific or 
any of the other sorts of so-called reasonable education of the present, who, therefore, does not have the opportunity to penetrate the old documents with spiritual science. We can imagine him to be a scholar, not a scholar at all. It doesn't really matter a great difference. We imagine him as having no connection with spiritual science and assume that he then approaches these old documents, the Greek, Persian, Indian, Germanic documents, and so on. He approaches these things with everything that modern thinking can give him. If he then really experiences not the slightest whiff of what is spiritual science, a peculiar phenomenon occurs. There will be a difference, depending on whether he is more poetically or soberly inclined, but on the whole we may say a phenomenon occurs. Such a person can in reality never understand the old documents any longer today. He cannot penetrate the way that wisdom is presented there. We can experience the most grotesque examples in this field. We need only refer to the most recent attempts to explain such ancient documents. Just at present there has been another booklet, which is actually of interest because it is so ridiculous, which makes a comprehensive attempt to explain all myths up to and including the Gospels, starting with the first documents of the most primitive peoples. It is a booklet which is exceptionally interesting precisely because of the grotesque way, indeed its grotesquely stupid way, of grasping these things. The booklet is called Orpheus. It is by Salomon Reinach, who is famous in France as a researcher in this field. Particularly among scholars, he is an indicative example of a man who has not felt the slightest whiff of the way by which one can penetrate these things. A specific method is used for everything, and it is all decreed away. All things are merely symbolic. No real beings stand behind Hermes, Orpheus, and others. These figures are only symbols and allegories. It is not becoming to repeat among reasonable people what is given as an interpretation of these symbols. It is expressed in such a way that one does not really want to repeat it. In this way, everything that is reality in the myths is proved out of existence, and thus the reality of Demeter and Persephone is decreed away, is proved out of existence. All these names simply existed as symbols. This is done by a method by which one could easily prove to children after eighty years that a man called Solomon Reinach could not have lived in France at the start of the twentieth century, but that contemporary culture had encapsulated under the name Solomon Reinach what is presented in his book. That could be proved perfectly. Yet such things provoke a lot of attention nowadays. And by the same method, evidence is now also put forward in Germany that Jesus never lived, something which also caused a sensation recently. We now ask ourselves, what is the real reason that we cannot penetrate these things today without spiritual science? And it is a fact that one cannot penetrate them without it. What is the reason? If we want to understand this reason, we have to look a little deeper into human development. We have to look some way back into human development. Then we see that we have to tell ourselves the kind of sciences which people have today 
the kind of sciences which are taught at the most basic level in schools about the sun and other things, were not possessed by the ancients. The kind of sciences which are understood by the intellect, by reason, that is something toward which humanity had to progress. And our souls, when they were born in earlier incarnations, were quite certainly unable to take in such sciences, because that did not exist, that was not incorporated into the culture. But the further we go back in development, the more we find, no matter where we look for the reasons, which I have frequently set out for many of you, that human beings had a wisdom in quite a different form from today, a wisdom about spiritual things which people of today are not capable of expressing in their scientific form. But wisdom ruled the souls, lived in the souls. It was simply there. The initiated leaders of humanity above all had this wisdom, and it can be historically shown, if we have anthroposophical spirit, that an archetypal revelation, an archetypal wisdom was spread across humanity which came to expression in various ways, depending on the stage of development here or there. If someone observes history in a truly anthroposophical spirit, they will find this archetypal revelation. Something else is, however, required. The ordinary, current, scientific human spirit must, if it wishes to penetrate to the true meaning of these documents, additionally undergo preparation. I am simply telling a fact now, a preparation, which enables it to penetrate into the spirit of these old writings. This consists of studying the documents which can be directly studied today. These are the Gospels. These are the Epistles of Paul. What is described there can directly bring us close to the archetypal revelation in the ancient documents so that we can understand it. That is a curious fact. But if a spiritual researcher, in accordance with the prejudices of today, had a certain dislike of approaching the Gospels, he might say it is only one religion among many, then it would show itself that he could not come to an understanding of the other documents either. There would always be a last final bit which would remain incomprehensible. But if he were to approach any phenomenon of the events in Palestine, and be it only in spirit, if he let himself be inspired by them, as it were, then a beam of enlightenment can in fact spread from the Gospels over the other documents. That is a fact, and it can be experienced. And then we will probably be willing to admit that these Gospels and these epistles of Paul are actually necessary for going back correctly into earlier periods. They cannot be ignored. If only we can truly read the spiritual documents, the Akasha Chronicle, it is not even necessary to go to the written Gospels, but we do have to go via the events in Palestine. Otherwise, certain things with regard to what has gone before will always remain unclear. So I did not want to refer positively to the written word, but to the events, and how they presented themselves to us in reality in human development. That is a very, very important fact. I would like to throw a little light on this fact from another direction still. Let us remember what I said. We cannot jump over the Christ event 
if we want to understand what has been given as an archetypal revelation of humanity, otherwise we will stumble and fall. If I want to describe how the matter actually presents itself, I have to say the following. Let us assume today's spiritual researcher investigates the past, and he has no sense, the sense is the important thing, of the Christ event. He passes by the Christ event and approaches the other earlier events in their development. He will find everywhere, truly everywhere, that he becomes insecure. But let us assume we had such a spiritual researcher who was born and lived before the Christ event, and who had progressed very far in respect of his clairvoyance, and was very advanced also in other respects, who in a certain sense was prepared enough before the Christian period to have an overview of all of the past in such a way that at that time he could already have passed through the Christ event because he was ahead of his time. Let us assume that he lived five or six centuries before Christ and was prepared enough to go back via Christ to the earlier events like a spiritual researcher today. Then we could literally ask ourselves, what would such a spiritual researcher have to be like in order not to fall prey to the Luciferic or Aramonic powers? Let us assume such a person actually needed to go via the Christ event, but this Christ event had not yet happened when he lived. Then it would turn out for such a person that he would either be content with a light heart, with what arose, what he could see, then he would say all kinds of things which were not quite right. Or alternatively, he would reach the point where he said to himself, Something is missing. I cannot find something when I turn my gaze backward, which I need for my path. And he would further admit to himself, Here I become insecure. I must search for something that I need, but it is not yet here on earth. It cannot be found in earth development. I have painted for you, theoretically as it were, a personality of the 5th, 6th century before Christ, which would have been prepared enough to find Jesus Christ in looking into the past. But because the latter was not yet on earth, that person could not find him as an earthly fact. This theory became quite a reality for me a short time ago. It was when I was able to visit our branch in Palermo last year. As I traveled on the ship toward Palermo, it suddenly became clear to me, a riddle will resolve itself for you, which can only easily be resolved through the direct impression here, in this place. And it did indeed very soon resolve itself. The personality about which I spoke to you just now in theoretical terms immediately presented itself to me in the whole atmosphere of Sicily. I might say in the whole astral body of Sicily, it was very alive. A personality continued to live, as it were, in the whole atmosphere of Sicily, who often appears as something of a riddle. It is the personality of Empedocles. This ancient Greek philosopher lived in Sicily in the 5th century before Christ. He was, as external historians also know, a person who was deeply initiated in a great variety of things, and performed magnificent things, particularly in Sicily. 
If we begin by looking at him spiritually, this personality presents itself in a curious way. In looking back at the development of Empedocles, following him and what he did as a statesman, architect, and philosopher, how he traveled about, how he had his enthusiastic pupils, how he initiated them into the various secrets of the world, if we follow him spiritually in this way, then we discover that this was a personality who knew an incredible amount of what people today possess by way of scientific knowledge. This personality had a very modern spirit, a modern aura. Empedocles had indeed advanced so far that he asked about the origin of the world. And he would truly also have been so advanced that after the way things turned out, he would have found Christ when he looked back. But Christ had not been there yet. He could not yet be found on earth. He was still missing on earth. These experiences caused Empedocles to waver, which in turn produced a particular kind of longing in him, and this longing transformed itself in him, in quite a different way from the superficial people of today, into a passion to look at the world materialistically. Lucifer approached him. We just have to imagine in a living way how that happened. He was a modern spirit, initiated into a great variety of mysteries, clairvoyant to a high degree. Through his modern thinking he was inclined to look at the world materialistically, and there is also a kind of materialistic system from him in which he represents the world approximately in the way that today's materialistic chemists do through combining and separating the elements. Only he distinguishes just between the four elements. Depending on how they are mixed, he thought, the various beings are formed. This view produced in him a great passion to find out what was behind these material elements, what was in the air and in the water. When we look back today through the Akasha Chronicle and look into air and water and fire and earth, we find Christ etherically in them. Empedocles was not able to find him. For him, an immense urge arose to find something in air and water and fire and earth to get behind what was in them. And we see this personality as he was gripped by this mighty urge to penetrate into what are the material elements. And that indeed leads him eventually to make a kind of sacrifice. Because it is not just a myth. He did throw himself into Etna to unite himself with the elements. The Luciferic force, the urge to deal with the elements, drove him to combine himself with the elements in this way. This death of Empedocles continues to live in the spiritual atmosphere of Sicily. That is a great secret of this remarkable country. And now consider the soul of Empedocles, who shed his body in this way by burning it. It is reborn in a later period after Christ has already been there. Then it is a completely different situation for this soul. Previously it sacrificed itself to the elements, we might say, then it arises anew, but in now looking back, it sees Christ. And all elemental knowledge is created anew. What this soul knew is created in a completely new form. The personality of Empedocles was indeed reborn at a later time, only I cannot say at this time under which name. But if we compare the later reincarnation of Empedocles 
which happened more in the north, if we compare this figure as it lived subsequently at the turn of the middle to the modern age with the Empedocles who threw himself in Etna, then we have a living picture of the giant impulse which arrived because the Christ event happened on earth in between. But what happens in this way in one personality also happens for every soul, also for your souls. Even if all these souls did not feel the mighty urge which Empedocles felt, they did look back into the past with a certain discomfort in the period which led up to the Christ event because it was not familiar to them, because the time was increasingly approaching in which the old knowledge disappeared. If we go back to earlier times, we will find that those who preserved the traditions of ancient knowledge stepped before the people. They told, let us put this before our souls, stories, which, if you like, are contained in the Greek sagas, which were told to the ancient Greeks. But that was only a cause that the ancient Greeks, when they, let us say, were in a special state, which at the time occurred to a greater degree than now, felt the truth of these sagas, and that these sagas gave them a jolt to look into the spiritual world. But this inclination faded among people. It came about that the inner force to look up into the spiritual world was lost to the degree that intellectual science approached. You can calculate, you can read in every little handbook, the small extent to which our views, which today every child absorbs, if not with the breast milk, then with the school milk, go back. They go back to a few hundred years before the start of the Christian era. That is when there is a mighty caesura. If people want to go further back and understand the ancient documents, they can no longer do so. They now appear to them as poetic works, as sagas and myths. That is something which we should indeed look at more closely. There will increasingly be people who, without having inherited some aptitude to understand the ancient documents, will fail to understand them. We will come to the view that behind everything that is considered to be science, a wide field of misapprehension is spreading, because most educated people are of the opinion that we now happily know how the earth moves and that what people in earlier times said about it was simply nonsense. It has already happened. We only go as far back as the view of Copernicus with regard to the movement of the earth. That is a somewhat late example. But even in geometry, people only go back as far as Euclid. Before this time, modern people see only black obscurity in this field. Thus modern people cannot find the wisdom, the archetypal revelation. They cannot find a way to penetrate it. If we now really accept this as a fact, then something, and this can happen in even the most ordinary mind through a healthy sentience, then something can consolidate into a basic conviction which results from the highest anthroposophical studies. Human beings still have to reach the point at which they say, this is not the true form in which I see the world. If this were the true form, then they would not really need to undertake any research. Then no research would be necessary. Then the world would have to appear as it is, but modern research does not accept it in this form either. There would be no Copernicanism 
if we accepted what the senses offer in its raw form. Here external science also questions sensory experience. If we go further, we can see that we cannot stop at what the senses provide, what the external experience of the physical world provides. That has to be corrected under all circumstances by human beings and also by external science. People might not normally admit that, but it is, nevertheless, true. As soon as we understand ourselves, even just as ordinary thinkers with what we learn today, we have to say to ourselves, the purpose of everything is to look beyond sensory illusion, otherwise there would be no science, there would be no thinking. But if this is the case, then there is actually something which allows us to understand quite easily in which direction the world is gradually developing. If we look at the matter a little in an anthroposophical light, then this will be affirmed. So if we tell ourselves that there was an archetypal wisdom, human beings were such that an archetypal wisdom was given to them, which maybe they only saw in pictures, but there was such an archetypal wisdom. But then, with the development of humanity, the understanding of that was increasingly lost. People understood this archetypal wisdom less and less. Then, in turn, it is very clear. They understood it less to the extent that science, that the intellect and reason, developed. Now we can ask, what will have happened by a particular time? Let us imagine something. Let us imagine a pre-Christian person who lived under certain conditions. He or she will have directed their gaze out into the world, will have seen many different things, but in addition the soul of this person contained the possibility of looking behind these things. This facility still existed. So for him or her was a fact that behind each flower there is an etheric body. That was fact for them. But this facility was gradually lost. It was lost because the intellect, reason as they are widespread today, banished this facility. The two facilities cannot be combined. They are two opposing forces. It is simply the case, that is, the common experience of all real spiritual researchers, that the reason, thinking in the normal sense, has a singeing, incinerating effect on what is an initiated view of things so that the science of ancient spiritual vision, and thus an understanding of the ancient traditions, was lost in history, to the extent that the intellect and reason in the ordinary sense made their appearance. Thus a number of centuries had to pass, and the person whom I have just described had to be replaced by another one, who might say to himself or herself, it would of course be a terrible preconception if one were to believe that truth was as it is represented through the senses in the world, it has to be supplemented in all cases by human reason. The belief in human reason was decisive. It has to start by dissecting things as they are. It has to tear into sensory appearances and understand them logically. Such a person might perhaps have said, that is the advantage of human beings over other creatures of the earth, that they have reason that they can understand cause and effect as they lie behind sensory things. 
They can explain these things. They can communicate from one person to another because they have language. Because that was soon recognized, that language is the daughter of reason. And such a person might say, the highest thing is, of course, reason. And if we want to obtain a proper picture of that person, we have to imagine someone who says, so, human being, trust only your reason. Dissect everything with your reason. Then you will come to the truth. Let us assume that such a person had come. I have described someone like that in theoretical terms, but there was indeed such a person. One figure of this kind was Cicero, who lived a short time before Christ. You only need to look at him to see that he thinks precisely in this way, namely that reason can understand everything. It is not true that the world is such as it presents itself to the senses, but reason can understand everything. And specifically among the people who appeared shortly before Christ, there is an invincible belief in reason. They call reason the God himself who resides in things. That is what Cicero does. But let us assume for a moment that someone gets behind the secrets of this whole thing. Let us assume someone watches the whole thing in an unbiased way, the way that everything develops gradually. How would they describe this time? Let us assume that someone with a deep insight would watch this whole thing a century before Christ. How would the whole story present itself to them? Well, they would say, here we see two streams in humanity, the one of them is failing, the old clairvoyant power. In its place, reason appears. It exterminates and eliminates the possibility in human beings to look into the spiritual world. A profound darkness will spread in respect of the spiritual world. Those who believe in the authority of reason might be of the opinion that they can look behind things with their reason. These people have completely forgotten what the reason is of which they speak. After all, such reason is merely tied to the brain. It cannot make use of any other instrument than the brain. It thus belongs to the physical world. It therefore has to share the characteristics of the physical world. Such a personality would therefore say, Insist as much as you like on your reason, and say that by means of it you can understand what lies behind things, because these things are not true in themselves. But remember that this reason itself belongs to these things. You are physical beings like the others. Your reason belongs to the physical world. And if you believe that this reason is the one thing through which you can get behind everything else, you are pulling the rug from under your own feet. That is what such a personality would have said. And they would have continued. Certainly human beings are inclined to make more and more use of reason, to insist more and more on reason. But in doing so, they are building a wall in front of the spiritual world because they are using an instrument which cannot be applied to the spiritual world, which is locked into the physical world. And yet, humanity is developing precisely toward cultivating this instrument. And this personality might have added, if they had been fully aware of the course of events, if human beings return to the spiritual world at all, then the possibility has to be given that they do not just want to make use of their reason, this tool which only works in the physical world, but that they receive a stimulus which enables them to ascend again a stimulus which drives reason itself up 
into the spiritual worlds. But that cannot happen unless something dies in human beings, which establishes in them the firm belief in the sole rule of reason. That has to die. We therefore have to imagine human beings as descending further and further into the material world, developing the brain more and more. If people became so dependent on their reason, they could no longer escape from it, because then their physical body would make them believe, let us do away with everything which our earth reason cannot grasp. But this is the physical body, which by developing itself in a subtle way, anesthetizes human beings so that they cannot understand that as a result they stay in the physical world. If you envision that, you will understand that human beings are actually caught in a kind of trap in this respect. It is not possible for them to get out of themselves. Current human development has brought human beings to the point at which they cannot get out of themselves at which they run the risk of being gradually, completely overwhelmed by their physical corporeality. Is there anything that can help human beings in this situation? If the possibility arises in this period, in which reason has arrived at this point, that reason can be altered so that the part of it can die which blinds it, then it has to die. But there has to be an impulse through which those things which could overwhelm human beings and their sole belief in reason, is overcome once and for all. Feel the power of this impulse. Feel that this was the meaning of human development. Corporeality has developed in such a way that it would have overwhelmed human beings, and human beings would have reached the point at which they believed that they would have to remain within the physical world and, yes, could get behind Maya, not considering that they are Maya themselves with their reason, if something had not come which helped them to emerge as soon as they accepted it and which could counter falling prey to the physical, something which truly works down as far as the etheric body so that the latter has the possibility of killing what leads to such an error. Otherwise human beings would have remained in the trap of their overwhelming corporeality. And now let us leave the person who might have spoken like that at the approach of Jesus Christ. Now let us see how a contemporary person might look at the matter, one of us. They can say, if I look in an impartial way at how human beings have developed, how reason has grown stronger and stronger, at this instrument which is part of Maya, I am definitely in error if I just abandon myself to the progression of world development. If I fail to take up the impulse that the part can die away which lures me into such a course, then that progression is of such a nature that I cannot escape from reason. What should have happened? I have to be able to look back to the time in which this impulse entered. I must find something that points to an event in the historical development of humanity, which indicates that the continuous course of development in a materialist sense has been turned inside out. If I looked inside me today and if I found something like that, what else would I have to find there? I would see reason extend further and further to a point at the start of the Christian period, 
where it just begins to take effect. But further back? There things turn dark. There things turn black. There I need something completely different. But then it grows lighter because there I have to encounter Christ. Everyone, if they wish to believe in the possibility at all that they make progress, that in the following incarnations something can be in them that drives them upward, which prevents them from being overwhelmed by Maya, everyone, in looking back, must encounter Christ. That can provide the ascent for them. Let us assume the Gospels did not exist. Then we can say we do not need them as anthroposophists. We do not need any Gospels. We only need to look at the course of human development in an unbiased way and to ask ourselves what would become of each human being if they could not look back to an event in which the whole meaning of previous development is turned upside down. Then we have to encounter Christ if we go back in development. The anthroposophist has to be able to find him, and the initiate will find him under all circumstances. That is a secret of Christianity. The documents can be challenged, certainly, and they are not historical documents. All the clever people, Jensen and others, who decree the Gospels away in a trivially scholarly way, look at them as mere myths, do not have a certain point because they only refer to external reason. But at the moment in which we are anthroposophists, we can say, we do not need any Gospels. We only need the facts which spiritual science gives us itself, and in going back through human development, we will find the living Christ as Paul found him through the event at Damascus. That anticipates what we also can have if we seek Christ in an anthroposophical sense. For after all, Paul was in a similar situation to a modern anthroposophist who does not want to recognize the Gospels. The Gospels did not yet exist in his time, but he was able to go to Jerusalem. What he heard there, what is later described in the Gospels, did not convince him otherwise he would not have left Jerusalem. So a modern person today does not need to be convinced either by what they say. He or she only needs to be in a position to experience something through anthroposophy similar to what Paul experienced. Then we have an event at Damascus. Then that person has proof of Christ completely, without any documents, as was the case with Paul. Now, it is quite natural that we refer with these things to something profound in human development, to something extraordinarily profound in human development. In a certain sense, what existed for the reincarnated Empedocles in the 15th-16th century, who looked back into earlier ages and then saw what he was not able to see previously, is the case for everybody, even the simplest person. Previously, Empedocles had become so insecure that he threw himself into Etna. In the 15th-16th century, he looked back, and what the first time could not be explained through anything, was now explained through the Christ principle. And that made him one of the most remarkable personalities of the subsequent time. In this way, the matter presents itself for every human being, without documents, simply through going back. Later on, all people will look back to earlier incarnations, 
and will be able to distinguish precisely those are incarnations which lie before and those are incarnations which lie after Christ. And what the simplest soul feels instinctively today when it reads the Gospels will then appear in the form of knowledge. That is the difference between the Gospels and other documents, that they are the closest documents which have to be understood. That is a great, beautiful, mighty gateway, the Gospels. If we pass through that gateway, it becomes light, whereas otherwise darkness spreads. It is indeed so. It can happen to modern people occasionally, because Christianity is only at the start of its development, that the research path peters out with regard to earlier things. But if they return to a phenomenon in the life of Christ, then they are inspired, and it becomes light. And what the spiritual researcher finds can also be found by the simplest people. They can experience a reflection in their mind of what I have just explained. They can be thoroughly depressed through human weaknesses and errors, but they have, of course, to tell themselves, what I am today I have become through all the generations. Because if they were to deny that, then they would be claiming to be their own father and mother. It is therefore something which leads back to the whole of humanity, and human beings can feel thoroughly depressed by all kinds of errors, illnesses, weaknesses which they have. But there is always the possibility to elevate ourselves, even for the simplest mind. I do not say that in an orthodox sense. What exists for the spiritual researcher also exists for the simplest mind. If it feels thoroughly weak, picks up the Gospels and reads them, then strength will flow out of the Gospels, because out of them flows the power of the Word which goes into the etheric body. The Gospels are powerful words. They are something which addresses not only the reason, but goes into deeper layers of the soul, which not only builds on the reason which is found in Maya, but which goes into more profound forces and can comfort reason about itself, as it were. That is a great strength of the Gospels, which is there for everyone, and that is the mighty thing in these documents. That is what distinguishes them from everything else. These things can also be denied, but then the possibility of making progress of human beings as a whole is denied. This refers to a fact which is not easy to understand, just like that. Thus you can also understand what was necessary to prepare the person whom I began by placing hypothetically before your soul, who, about a century before the Christian era, predicted one had to come who gives the impulse which will bring about the turnaround. This had to be a significant personality, who was also properly prepared. In the circles of those with the knowledge, the attempt was made for a long time to bring about the possibility that at least some would understand the approaching time, understand what was being prepared, what, on the one hand, guides people into the trap, and what, on the other hand, guides people to ascend through the appearance of Christ. That was taught prophetically. And the person who, a little over a century before the Christian era, was chosen to teach this prophetically, in circles which could understand it, was an initiate from the Essene community, which was close to the circles which Christ joined, and he proclaimed, he would come who would lead humanity to ascend again. The person who taught this within the Essene community 
was a very significant individuality. External history actually knows little about him, but tales are handed down about him, at least by some writers, so that he is not just a mythological figure or is only named in spiritual science. He lived a hundred years before Christ and also had records made by one of his five or six pupils. One of the pupils of this personality, who spoke about Christ and proclaimed his coming, knew what this was about. This personality had a pupil who was called Matai, who recorded the secrets about Christ. But the personality was Jeshu ben Pandira. Because he taught those things, he also had to go through the corresponding martyrdom. He was stoned in his region, and after stoning, when he was dead, was hanged. This Jeshu ben Pandira, he must not be confused with Jesus of Nazareth, who was the great proclaimer of Christ, had recorded what he knew, and this document then came into the hands of the person who inserted it with its secrets into the Gospel, which we call the Gospel of Matthew. This is an important and exceptionally important fact which must be understood. Firstly, the necessity of the Christ impulse, then in spiritually scientific historical terms, how Jeshu ben Pandira, in a certain sense, even preempted as an image, in that he was first stoned and then was quasi-crucified immediately afterward, what then takes place as the Christ mystery of Golgotha. After all, Christ was not stoned, but crucified. And in this death a wonderful thing occurs. At the moment in which the blood flowed from the wounds, the thing was transferred into the earth's atmosphere, which for those who, looking back on it, take this event into their etheric body, who pass through this event, who look into Christ's tomb, as it were, then means that they enter a past filled with light as they pass through this point. In contrast, without this event, darkness will spread over everything that lay before. Reflect on what has been said today. It is my task to indicate it to you. It is such a large subject that only indications could be given. But I have kept these indications such that if you examine what you know and carry in your heart, you will learn the extent to which, through life and through your own soul, it is proved to be true regarding what I was held to talk to you today. The end of Lecture 9